If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Fiat. A remix just hits different. The 2024 Fiat 500e is no exception. Cruise city streets in style with an all-electric ride that's fully equipped with an available premium JBL audio system. Explore the all-new 2024 Fiat 500e at fiat.com. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Awaken your senses with a curiously refreshing Hendrix Cucumber Lemonade. Curious how? Cue the aroma. Marvelous. Cue the taste. Magnificent. Cue the cucumber. That's the refreshing secret. Hendrix is uncommonly crafted with cucumbers, roses, artistry, and imagination. Other gins are ordinary, but Hendrix is refreshingly curious. Discover Hendrix Gin cocktail recipes at HendrixGin.com. Please drink the unusual responsibly. Hendrix Gin, 44% alcohol by volume. Bottled and imported by William Grant & Sons, New York, New York. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. It's 40 years since Margaret Thatcher dispatched a task force to the South Atlantic in a bid to seize back the Falkland Islands from Argentinian forces. The resulting conflict cost hundreds of lives. Yet victory, when it came, was decisive, and it changed the face of modern Britain. On today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, Spencer Mizen sat down with Helen Parr to discuss the Falklands War. Helen is Professor of Modern and Contemporary History at Keele University, and she's also the author of Our Boys, the story of a paratrooper, which tells the story of the conflict and of her uncle Dave Parr, who lost his life in it. As always with this series, our questions are drawn from a mixture of popular internet search queries and ones that you've submitted on our various social media channels. Helen, the the first question I'm going to ask you is one submitted by Joe Freeman on Instagram, and that is, what was the Falklands War? Now, I know this is quite a basic question, but it's one that I think will prove quite useful in the context of this discussion, because I guess not all of our listeners have a massively 
detailed knowledge of the conflict. So I was just wondering, in, in the space of a few minutes, if you could run through the Falkland War's chief milestones, please. The Falklands War was a 74-day-long conflict over the sovereignty of the Falkland Islands uh, fought between Britain and Argentina uh, between April and June 1982. So there was a long-standing dispute over the sovereignty of the Falkland Islands uh, in Argentina. They're known as the Malvinas. Um, And... During the 1970s, 1960s and 1970s, there had been negotiations between Britain and Argentina uh, over the future sovereignty of, of the islands. Um, so the Argentine sovereignty claim was rooted in anti-colonialism. Um, the British uh, hesitation about decolonizing the islands was that the island population uh, very strongly wanted to remain uh, in British hands. So. There was a military junta in power in Argentina after 1976, and that uh, military junta was in trouble. And on the 2nd of April 1982, uh, the dictatorship then headed by President General Galtieri uh, used force to occupy, invade um, East Falkland. So they um, uh, landed on, on the island, Uh, There was a firefight with the small group of Royal Marines who were stationed there. Um, But it was a very small group of Royal Marines. There was really nothing they could do. Uh, And the Argentines raised the Argentine flag at at Government House. And that use of force changed everything. So in Britain, there was uh, shock and real dismay that, uh, that Britain had allowed sovereign British territory to be uh, to be invaded. The House of Commons met the following day, which was a Saturday, Saturday the 3rd of April, and at the House of Commons that day, there was cross-party support for sending the task force in response to the Argentine uh, occupation. The fleet started to be assembled over that weekend, absolutely enormous logistical effort, and it began to, to sail from Portsmouth on the Monday, Monday the 5th of April. So it was the largest uh, uh, assembly of force since the Suez Crisis, and it was the first kind of force of this, of this nature um, in, a, in, in a generation. It obviously took quite a long time for the fleet to get to the islands, because um, the islands are 8,000 miles away from, from, from Britain. And while they were sailing, there there were diplomatic efforts between Britain and Argentina, mediated by the United States, but no uh, resolution was um, was found. On the second of May, uh, the British a British submarine attacked the uh, Argentine ship, the General Belgrano, uh, and that was the 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 episode with the greatest loss of life uh, during during the conflict. And after that point, it was really clear that there was no, there was not going to be a negotiated settlement, uh, and that the conflict would be resolved uh, by uh, by fighting. Two days later, there was a retaliation against the British ship, the HMS Sheffield, um, which caused shock in um, in in Britain. On the twenty first of May, uh, troops uh, began to land uh, on the islands. 
And between 21st of May uh, and the 14th of June, there was fighting during the land campaign. Uh, and on 14th of June, the Argentines completely surrendered and sovereignty of the islands um, uh, returned to, to, to Britain. So it was a it was a short conflict. It was there was some very intense fighting uh, during the conflict, and it had a completely unambiguous outcome: the sovereignty of the islands returned to to, to Britain. In the United Kingdom, um, the the conflict and the successful resolution of the conflict enormously enhanced the political standing of Margaret Thatcher. Um, the Falklands conflict really made Margaret Thatcher into the into the Iron Lady, with the image of uh, of, of of Margaret Thatcher that most of us would associate. Really came from the the Falklands conflict and the victory in the Falklands. Thanks, Helen. That was a re- really great summary to uh, to get us going with the podcast. Um, now I wonder if I could uh, rewind a couple of hundred years with a question from uh, Roberta Alessandra, also submitted on social media. And that is, how and when did the Falklands become British territory? So that's a really good question. Um, So Britain, the British Empire and the Spanish Empire had a long-standing dispute over the sovereignty of the islands. Um, There's a kind of contestation over who spotted them first. I think it was actually the French who who spotted them first. And for a time, both those imperial powers maintained settlements on, on, on different islands. But the, the, the British sovereignty claim now really dates from 1830, well, not exactly the sovereignty claim, but the unbroken British settlement on the islands really uh, dates from 1833. So on that date, uh, a British warship expelled some of the settlers on the island. There was a, a kind of an itinerant group of um, uh, of uh, shepherds or fishermen living on the islands. Uh, they were expelled uh, by a British a British ship and a British settlement was established. Uh, that settlement um, endured, so it had a it developed an administration. Uh, it kind of it developed a sort of a settled population on the on the islands, and many of the inhabitants in 1982 were descended from those original uh, British settlers uh, from from 1833. So, from the Argentine perspective. Because you might wonder you know, where the Argentine claim comes from. The Argentine claim was really rooted in anti-colonialism. So it's really connected to the birth of the Argentine nation as Argentina came uh, through off Spanish imperial uh, imperial rule. Um, and that was sort of in the 1820s, 1830s. And the whole idea of, uh, of Greater Argentina, the, um, the territory of the, of the Malvinas, as they call them, is really deeply rooted in, um, in, in, in that idea. So it's a very kind of deeply held um, uh, uh, notion in Argentina. It's part of the Argentine constitution now that the islands belong to, to Argentina because of that kind of history of anti-colonialism and, uh, and the way in which it's, uh, it's tied to the, um, uh, to the Argentine nation. And for the British, the sovereignty claim comes from, well, you know, did, did 
Spain really ever have a valid claim to to the territory. It was a sort of a British administration uh, uh, and a British settlement, which um, which was the most enduring there. And the people who live in the islands uh, have ancestry with that with that settlement and very strongly uh, want to remain British. Why did they choose 1982 to launch their invasion of the islands? This is a question again from uh, Robert Alessandra. What caused Argentina to invade when it did? There was a military uh, dictatorship came to power in a coup in Argentina in 1976. And that dictatorship had waged a war against the Argentine people. Um, So there had been very significant civil conflict in Argentina uh, up until that point. Um, Tens of thousands of people had been disappeared by the military regime. Um, and that use of the term disappearance was uh, a, a deliberate one because the the regime uh, murdered uh, its uh, uh, its opponents and often took their bodies and dumped them in the in the river plate with the idea of expunging their memories from um, from history. So there are examples where the children of um, who the regime would label as subversives, the children of subversives, the the, the infants of, of 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 those people would would be, you know, the regime would kill the parents, take the infants and 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 give them to uh, families favourable to the regime. So uh, you know, to be brought up uh, by the regime. So it's a very brutal uh, dictatorship. Uh, from their perspective, you know, they were. Protecting the integrity of the um, of the Argentine nation uh, and waging war against a kind of subversive guerrilla campaign. Um, now, that war had obviously caused quite significant unrest and discontent in um, in in Argentina, and in particular, there'd been protests by the the mothers of the of the Plaza del Mayo uh, who used to gather outside the presidential palace demanding to know the the whereabouts of the children of their children who'd been disappeared uh, and that kind of that discontent was very widespread and added to that there was hyperinflation in Argentina so the discontent was spreading beyond those who who whose families had been directly affected by the um uh, by by this by the war um and uh, uh, and so the regime was in trouble. General Galtieri uh, uh, became president in December 1981, um, and his leadership was uh, quite chaotic. Uh, I mean, he was notoriously uh, very frequently drunk. There's one example where um, uh, President Reagan phoned him up uh shortly after the occupation to kind of to talk to him about it and uh, and he was was incoherent with drink so it, it, perhaps his judgment uh was not always uh, the the greatest um and they significantly miscalculated what the british response would be um in 1981, the British had removed, they had a, a, a Navy patrol ship, the HMS Endurance, which had uh, patrolled around the islands. And people uh, sort of saw that as a form of deterrent, uh, you know, deterring the Argenti- 
the Argentines from thinking about an, an invasion, uh, and that had been removed as part of the Navy defence cuts in, um, in in 1981. So the Argentines kind of significantly miscalculated what the British response would be, uh, and probably assumed that you know if they if they took force to to the Falkland Islands that. Um, well, maybe even to the extent that many of them believe that they, the islanders would welcome them as liberators from British colonial rule. Uh, so I think that is why the, it, um, it happened then. Actually, that, that point you just made, that takes us nicely on to our next question, which is from Franchise505 on Instagram. And that person asks, why were the people of the Falklands so loyal to the British? Um, you just said that, you know, the Argentinians thought that they might actually welcome them onto the island, but of course they didn't. Now, now, now why, why was that? What, why did the people of the Falklands feel such an affinity with Britain, which was, after all, 8,000 miles away? It's a good question. I think, so most of the Falkland Islanders I've spoken to, they would say they are Falkland Islanders first and foremost, but they have an enormously strong affinity with, um, with, with Britain. So I think there are sort of there are quite basic things. They're descended from the original British settlers. They speak English. They have English customs. Um, uh, you know, uh, they have red letter boxes. Uh, they go to pubs and drink pints of bitter. Um, they're not Catholic, uh, which is maybe sort of a significant cultural difference uh, with with Argentina. Probably in the nineteen seventies. The fact that Argentina had been taken over by a military di- dictatorship definitely didn't help the negotiations. Um, you know, Britain and Argentina had been discussing whether it could be possible to uh, to transfer uh, sovereignty to um, Argentina, kind of in the spirit of decolonisation. But once once Argentina was taken over by a military dictatorship, it, you know. It, Nobody would really want to hand over people who maintain that allegiance to Britain to such a uh, t- such a dreadful regime. Um, so I think there's there's you know there there's resistance there for a very valid reason. Um, I think that in the 1970s, I mean, the islands have changed a great deal in from 1982 till till now. And in the 1970s, they they become quite impoverished. So despite this sort of this great allegiance to Britain, the Falkland Islands Company, um, which owned uh, nearly all of the land in the Falkland Islands, it it was very much an absentee landlord. Uh, It hadn't sort of reinvested uh, in the land. Uh, People didn't, the people in the Falkland Islands didn't have a kind of great deal of of control over their sort of economic fortunes. Um, And there was probably in the 1970s a sort of sense of drift uh, and maybe a kind of assumption that gradually people would move away uh, and the islands would become uh, would become inhabited uninhabited but certainly the people who who lived there didn't want that to happen um, they're very much invested in um, in a British future now our next question comes from uh, Leia Falcon 12 and uh, she asks, which leaders played a defining role in the war? Now, we've we've talked about General Galtieri. So why don't we now talk about Margaret Thatcher? Obviously, you've touched upon her already. Um, but I, I wanted to kind of ask you, what was the state of play politically and militarily in Great Britain at, at, at the outbreak of the war? Yeah, it's a good question. So obviously, Margaret Thatcher is the really significant leader in Britain uh, at, at, at this point. but it's 
it's it's easy to forget quite how politically divided Britain was in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And it's easy to forget how unpopular Margaret Thatcher had been. Um, you know, she was, uh, she took office in 1979. She was obviously, she was the first female leader of the Conservative Party. She was the first female prime minister. She was an oddity in in, in that respect. Um, there was very significant opposition to um, her spending cuts, uh, not just from the political opposition, but also from within the Conservative Party. Um, unemployment reached three million in in early in January nineteen eighty two for the first time since nineteen forty five, and there was a real sense that uh, that you know how could any government survive uh, unemployment reaching uh, that such high levels. Um, so she really her her future was was very uncertain in early 1982 and when news first came of the Argentine invasion there was a huge sense of shock uh, and of of humiliation and and of blame in a way you know how could britain have, have allowed this to happen um and lord carrington who was the foreign secretary of the time he resigned he resigned very very quickly and he kind of he shouldered the responsibility for uh for the occupation um, uh, uh, taking place. So in terms of, you know, how, how things developed, it, 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 Margaret Thatcher was in a position of, of, of quite a lot of jeopardy, really, because if the, you know, if the conflict had gone differently, her, she would have been in, in, in a lot of political uh, trouble. So once Britain was committed on this course, there was a great deal of uh, at, at stake. A great deal at stake. So this is a, a quite substantial political gamble for her. What kind of reaction did her decision to go to war elicit from you know the the, the political military establishment in Britain? I mean, what was the state of the of, of Britain's armed forces at the time? I mean, did did a lot of people doubt whether this could be pulled off? I think that the armed forces were not prepared for this kind of conflict. Nobody had really expected that there was going to be a conflict in the South Atlantic, eight thousand miles from home, over something as sort of isolated as the uh, as the Falkland Islands. Um, you know, the British armed forces had been preparing for the Cold War, um, not for a kind of out of theatre <laughs> uh, uh, operation. But the military reacted very, very quickly. So there's a story that, you know, on, on the evening when the British first heard that uh, uh, that the occupation had taken place, the Admiral Sir Henry Leach, who was the uh, head of the Navy, kind of turned up in Mrs Thatcher's office in the House of Commons and assured her that it would be possible to assemble a task force over the weekend and that they could sort of set sail on the, you know, on the Monday, uh, which indeed they did. But I think it's also important to remember that that sending the task force didn't inevitably mean that there was going to be armed conflict. So that during April, as the fleet was setting sail, there were negotiations over the over the future of the islands. And um, probably one of the British hopes was that this kind of display of military force, you know, we said that uh, that Argentina had miscalculated, they weren't expecting Britain to react. So there was probably a hope in Britain that once Argentina could see that Britain was reacting, that they might revisit their, their you know, their stance. So there, there was a mediation mission run by the uh, American 
uh, uh, Secretary of State Alexander Haig. Um, but there, there was no diplomatic uh, solution. Argentina was very, very reluctant to um, to lose the gain that they had gained by by force. Um, so the, a, a diplomatic solution wasn't found, uh, and then then the fighting war started. Had Britain not been able to claim that unambiguous victory in in the time frame, it could have been very, very much more difficult for uh, for for a, for a British Prime Minister. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I was in Buenos Aires recently, and it's quite striking that there there are murals on the walls of uh, that people have painted that show the Royal Marines surrendering when the Argentine forces first arrived. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Now, I've just asked you sort of what kind of risk um, embarking on this uh, on this war presented for Margaret Thatcher, but here's a question from Rob James, which kind of looks at it from the, the other angle. And he he asked, what might have been the actual impact on Britain and its global standing if it had chosen not to try and take the islands back? What would that have done for the country's reputation? That is a very interesting question. So in the House of Commons, after news of the Argentine occupation, there was absolutely cross-party support for sending the task force. And it's worth remembering as well that the leader of the Labour Party at that time was Michael Foote. Uh, He's on the left of the Labour Party. He was one of the founding members of the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. Uh, But he is a staunch anti-appeaser. And so you know, his message in the House of Commons it was that, you know, Britain must not bow down to a dictator. Uh, and so, you know, both parties supported the, the dispatch of the task force. There was more division a bit later um, 
because I think some people felt that perhaps Britain should have gone further to try to um, negotiate a settlement uh, and that perhaps the kind of, you know, the use of force wasn't worth, uh, there were only 1,800 islanders, it was a territory far away from home. Um, But I think once the fleet had been dispatched, it would have been very, very difficult not to go through with the action because the only resolution that would have been possible, Argentina were not going to back down on their basic sovereignty claim. So the only kind of diplomatic solution that would have been possible would have had to have involved some kind of face-saving formula in the short term, but with an acknowledgement of Argentine sovereignty in the longer term. And so it's very, very hard to do that without, um, without losing face. Now, here's a question from Alex Plotkin, and that was, or that is, sorry, was there ever a moment when it seemed Britain would lose the war? Now, as well as answering that question, I I wonder if you could sort of give me your your assessment of how the British armed forces performed during this operation. So the British armed forces performed extremely well. It was a very, very difficult operation. What were the main challenges? Well, I mean, there's a basic challenge just of the the terrain and the weather. Uh, it's a uh, it's very on, inhospitable. Um, once they're on the islands, um, uh, you know, they're living outdoors, uh, sort of facing the onset of the South Atlantic winter. Um, the ships are uh, were you know in the waters around the Falkland Islands are under almost constant threat of air attack. Um, so it's it's it was extremely uh a difficult kind of logistically and in terms of the the kind of the climate and the and the terrain the argentine air force posed an extremely grave threat um there were many uh, you know brave and experienced pilots um who did uh, bomb several of um uh, of uh, british ships um uh not all the bombs that they dropped uh, were fu- were fused correctly, so they didn't all uh, detonate. So there could have been um, more damage than there uh, than there was. The uh, Argentine Air Force didn't manage to attack uh, the aircraft carriers. Had they managed to do that, that would have been a very very difficult challenge for um, for Britain. And they didn't attack the troop ships, uh, apart from you know the dreadful bombing of the Welsh guards as they were waiting to uh, to, to disembark from their ship uh, in the bay at Fitzroy. Uh, the air force didn't. The Argentine air force didn't manage to uh, to inflict losses on on the on the troop ships before they landed on the islands. Um, you know there are some quite perilous moments during the land campaigns as well. So, for example. Um, when the the parachute regiment attack uh, Darwin and Goose Green, the the plan was that they would be at, at the gates of Goose Green by dawn, but they they weren't. They were uh, sort of pinned back and completely in the open. Um, so you know that's a very perilous moment, and uh, it's 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 only really because of the kind of spirit and determination of the soldiers on the ground that they uh, that they win through there. Um, 
the Scots Guards took very heavy lo- losses on Tumbledown. Um, three Power took very heavy losses on on Mount Longdon. Uh, so it's it's a difficult campaign, um, but because of the kind of you know running up to the Argentine surrender, there's a coordinated night attack on the hills around Stanley, and and that sort of the Argentines have to concede that they that their armed forces cannot continue. Now, the Battle for Goose Green you just mentioned, and that's quite an I- iconic sort of event in, in this war. Can you can you just tell us a little bit more about that, please? Yes, it, it becomes iconic because it's the battle in which Colonel H. Jones is, um, was killed. Uh, so he was the commanding officer of, um, of two para. So he was killed running up to a, a, a machine gun post. Uh, and, you know, people kind of question whether he should have been the furthest man forward but there's no doubt that it was an extraordinary act of uh, of personal bravery on on his part um it it the battle uh, i mean as i said the original battle plan was that they were to have arrived at the gates of goose green where there's a civilian settlement uh, by by dawn but when the light came up they were not really halfway there they had to fight their way down uh, this narrow isthmus between the settlement of Darwin and the settlement of Goose Green. Um, the Argentines were dug into trenches all the way across the um, the isthmus, and so they were drawn into some very intense and kind of close quarters fighting um, there. And once the light came up, they I mean, it's completely flat. If you look at the terrain, there's a sort of a slight hill at Darwin, which was where Jones was killed. And then it just slopes gently down to Goose Green. So the Argentines at Goose Green they could see them. So during the day, the fighting became quite chaotic. And then... Um, uh, and then night fell again, and you know many of the paras who I spoke to said that you know that second night was really the worst moment for them because um, they didn't know what was going to happen in the morning, and they'd virtually run out of ammunition. So in the morning, the Argentines surrendered. Uh, the Argentines at Goose Green surrendered, and the Falkland Islanders who'd been kept uh, uh, hostage in. Um, in the community centre at Goose Green were were freed. But they, you know, during that night, they didn't know that. They didn't know what was going to happen in the morning. Now, you've got a strong family connection to the conflict, haven't you? I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that, please. So my uncle, um, Dave Parr, was a a private in the Parachute Regiment. Uh, So he was 17 when he joined the Parachute Regiment and uh, he was 19 uh, during uh, during the Falklands conflict. So he he actually um, went into battle at, uh, at Goose Green, but he was injured uh, very early on in that uh, in that engagement. They came under uh, under fire from quite close quarters, and he was hit in the in the stomach. But when uh, the medics came forward to tend to him, and you know under under fire themselves they cut away his clothing and they found that the the bullet had um struck his water bottle entered his clothing and come to rest in his belly button without breaking the skin so he uh you know he he hadn't been badly injured he had a bruised stomach but he was uh he was evacuated from the battle and and, and taken to the field hospital uh it, you know he must have thought he was about to die when the when the bullet hit him 
Um, so he went to the field hospital and then he uh, he came back to, to, to rejoin the, the unit after the Battle of Goose Green. He went forward with them um, onto Wireless Ridge and uh, unfortunately on Wireless Ridge he was, uh, he was killed. Um, he was actually killed in a uh, by British artillery, um, which was brought down uh, onto the, you know, onto the position where where uh, where the where his company was. Um, so he was the only person killed in that uh, uh, in that incident, uh, and that was just a few hours before the um, before the Argentine surrender. So this is obviously a ter- terribly tragic event for you and your family, and obviously as a result, the war is loom large in your life and you've 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 written a book about soldiers experiences of the conflict so so i yeah i wonder if you could sort of tell us a little a bit about what it was like to what the falklands war was like to fight in for the soldiers on the ground on both the british and and the argentinian sides so while i was researching the book i spoke to quite a lot of um former paratroopers and and some other british soldiers and um one of the things that I found really striking was how central the parachute regiment was to to their lives. Um, so their their pride in the regiment, and I'm sure it will be true, you know, for any regiment or unit uh, with which uh, professionally trained soldiers are fighting, their pride in that unit uh, was absolutely uh, very often at the at the absolute core of their identity so i think it's sort of it's important to say you know not everyone's experiences were the same people experienced um, different things but one of the things that really struck me was that what people experienced was kind of was seen through that lens of the uh, of the regiment always and you know when they went out to the islands they you know, paratroopers—they're trained to be confident. Uh, they really believe they're the best, and you know, they're also—they're young men. You know, they don't think they're going to die. And um, going into battle, it could really come as a shock when they saw their friends uh, killed or injured. And um, that sort of, you know, that that sort of that sense of shock. Uh, I think someone said, you know, we thought we were invincible, uh, uh, but, you know, we we weren't. <laughs> we weren't invincible. And that kind of, you know, that sort of, that feeling of, uh, I don't know, a sort of insidious fear that perhaps they hadn't been as good as they, they thought they were, even though they won, you know, even though they probably couldn't have performed any better than they did. Uh, that's something that could, um, you know, that could that could stay with people afterwards. Um, and then, you know, for I uh, recently spoken to a couple of Argentines, and again, I um, a couple of former Argentine soldiers, and again, I think it's sort of something which both sides would share was the the real horror of seeing um, the casualties of war, um, and the the how difficult it was to have to you know they were fighting in quite combined space in quite confined spaces um and having to to sort of to see and to deal with the um the casualties and sadly with the bodies is was something which which many people on both sides of the conflict found extremely difficult to um 
uh, to do at the time. And also it could be something which sort of lingered with them uh, in the in, in the aftermath. And I imagine the weather had quite a bit of an impact on their experiences as well, didn't it? Like, like you said earlier, this is quite a, a barren, in a, in a, inhospitable place to fight at times. Well, absolutely. So the Argentine forces you know, obviously arrived on the islands and then had to wait for the British to come. So they'd been there for quite a number of weeks before the, the battles uh, started. And, um, you know, they were living outdoors. The lines of supply weren't always... Um, very good. So, you know, the Falkland Islanders sometimes reported young Argentine troops coming to the island settlements and, and begging for food. Um, so I think by the time the British had ar- arrived, um, some of the Argentines uh, were finding life in the islands already very, very hard uh, because of the climate, because of the terrain, because of that kind of... Um, <laughs> you know, well, because (laughs) they were cold, they were young, they were hungry uh, sometimes. Um, For the British, you know, they're taking pride in their kind of, uh, which I'm sure the Argentines do as well, but uh, taking pride in their kind of ability to cope with those quite extreme conditions. But nevertheless, um, you know, many of them said they got their feet wet as soon as they disembarked the the landing craft. Sometimes their feet didn't dry out. Some of them uh, began to suffer from, um, from, from trench foot they're constantly living out outdoors um it's it's dark it was often snowing sleeting sometimes very foggy during those night engagements visibility is was uh, was very very poor uh, so there's no doubt that the the, the conditions were, were were extremely uh harsh okay we've had a, a question from c weaker and that is what was the aftermath of the war how did the conflict change britain so we know that it ended in victory and it's now remembered as, as an enormous event in in British history in, in in the context of the early eighties. But you know, what did it do for the country as it as it progressed further into the eighties? There's maybe three things to highlight here. The first is that there's absolutely no doubt that it consolidated Margaret Thatcher's authority. Um, so first of all, in the Conservative Party, so there had been real doubt about her leadership uh, prior to the to the conflict but the victory in the Falklands enabled her to silence her critics in the in the conservative cabinet in the conservative party and really to secure her authority in the in 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 the conservative party so it it made her into the leader that people think of when they when they think about Margaret Thatcher and that obviously you know it's uncertain whether it completely caused the 1983 conservative election landslide victory but it it certainly contributed to it and it contributed to a sort of a change sense of um of, of mood um uh, in the country so i think you know in that sense its longer term impacts are are, are are obvious it sort of it paved the way for that a large conservative majority in 1983 and for the sort of you know the subsequent political event the minor strike and so forth that, that people think of when they think about the uh the the 1980s but i think it's also important to be slightly cautious because there was a change of mood but it's not the case that everybody thought that this sort of that celebration was the best response to to victory. So just as an example, at the um 
memorial service at St Paul's Cathedral uh, held after the war, the Archbishop of Canterbury issued quite a cautionary sermon where he sort of reminded people that, um, well, what he said was nationalism is a false god and uh, armed conflict should never be celebrated. It should always be regretted uh, and our, our sort of the tone should always be, you know, never again. Uh, so there was kind of questioning of whether, you know, nobody could deny that this was a victory and nobody could deny that this was a really important victory. But there there was questioning of, of, of the tone within which. And I think perhaps the third thing that can be said is, is I think it did begin to change Britain's relationship with the armed services. So it's obviously, you know, it was a it was a war that was very prominent in the in the in the public eye. And after the conflict, there were lots of sort of stories of individual servicemen, stories about individual families. And that sort of that individual attention that was focused on the armed services, I think, was new. And individual attention focused on the families of armed servicemen. Um, I think it was something that was that was new. And it sort of it gradually began to encourage um a sort of a more emotional attitude in Britain towards um, towards the armed services. Uh, you know, partly that's a sort of social thing because people over time became more comfortable talking about the emotional legacies of um, of conflict, and partly also it's um, uh, I, I don't know it, it kind of a just a change in tone of the way in which people thought about the troops, uh, and you perhaps sort of saw that. You know, come to the fore more during Iraq and Afghanistan when there was tremendous public support for the troops, but much less support for the for the government or uh, for the state. And you know, perhaps and almost ironically, that change can be kind of traced back to the to the Falklands. And a question from Jay Reynolds: That is, how is the war remembered and memorialised today in Argentina? So that's also a really good question, and it's not a very easy one to to answer, um, because the war obviously have, has a very difficult legacy in Argentina because they lost it, and so to an extent it isn't remembered, and certainly it isn't remembered as a, as a defeat, which might sound strange. Uh, the war got rid of the dictatorship. Within a year, democracy had been restored in Argentina. So, you know, obviously that's a that's a positive outcome. But I was in Buenos Aires recently, and it's quite striking that there there are murals on the walls of uh, that people have painted that show the the Royal Marines surrendering when the Argentine forces first arrived. Uh, so it's almost as if they try to imagine that the rest of the conflict didn't didn't happen. Finally, the Falklands today, to what extent is it different to how it was 40 years ago in 1982? The Falkland Islands are enormously different to how they were in 1982. So the population has more than doubled um, and they have become very much more prosperous. So uh, in the 1970s, the economy was in real decline, uh, but the conflict um, stimulated sort of economic reform. Um, the Falkland Islands Company sold off the land so islanders could become uh, uh, landowners. 
and um, the, the, they also um, the sale of fishing licenses meant that they could take more control over uh, over over fishing. And now I think the fishing industry uh, has become sort of much more uh, much more central, much more much more prominent to the economy. So it's a much more prosperous place. The island as they've also you know uh, taken sort of more control over their own self government. So they you know they really emphasise they're a self governing entity. And in 2013, 2014, they held a referendum uh, which returned a 99.8% yes vote in favour of uh, do you want to remain British or, you know, in allegiance with, the, uh, with, uh, with Britain, which is a fairly emphatic indication of their, of their preferences. That was Helen Parr, Professor of Modern and Contemporary History at Keele University. Helen's book, Our Boys, The Story of a Paratrooper, is out now published by Alan Lane. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Collins.